0: Hello everybody, this is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas, for several decades. This week, Deborah Moncrief-Bell has two conversations with prominent lesbians. First, Joyce Gabbiola, the LGBT history librarian at the University of Houston.
1: Basically, these are collections of records and when I say records, I mean that can be anything. It could be documents, it could be papers of transactions, but it could also be other objects such as photos. We actually have a sword in special collections. You know, it could be anything that basically has enduring value.
0: Then Deborah has a conversation with Patricia Gray Hall, who has written a memoir about growing up lesbian in the 1960s and 70s.
2: I asked her if there's any way that I could meet other girls like me who like girls. And she said, no, probably not, because I told her I was 15. She said, you're underage, and there really aren't any places for you to go to meet other underage women.
0: And we have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now.
2: This is Deborah
3: Moncrief-Bell, and I'm talking with Joyce Gabiola, the LGBT History Research Collections Librarian at the University of Houston. So, Joyce, tell me what Hi. exactly this is. What is the History Research Collection?
1: The LGBT History Research Collection is A collection of um, coming from community members in Houston, um, across the state, and in the region. Um, Basically, these are collections of records. And when I say records, I mean that can be anything. It could be documents, it could be papers of transactions, but it could also be other objects, such as photos. We actually have a sword in special collections. You know, it could be anything that basically has enduring value. Um, and so the collections that we have um, are from folks who are either um, you know politicians or you know they're just average you know community members who um, find meaning in some of the materials that they have gathered over time. Um, and so these are these are materials that document um, LGBTQ history. Um, and from, you know, different perspectives, um, from different community members, as you know, our community isn't a monolith, we don't, you know, we don't like the same things, we don't vote the same way, and so it's really important to have, like, this diverse collection of um, materials that document history. So yeah, um, and the, um, the collection, you know, has been around... Oh gosh, I don't know exactly when it started, but um, it has become so large, and that is why the University of Houston um, started efforts to um, create my position, and um, which I'm very, very, very grateful um, to have and to be back in Houston, which is uh, my hometown, my uh, my family, and. Um my uh, longtime friends who I met at the University of Houston, also where I came out, um, are all here. So to be doing this work is just more than amazing.
3: How did you get involved in this as a career path?
1: That also started in Houston. Um, and I was just talking about this with some undergrads in uh, Maria Gonzalez's Gay um, and Lisbon literature course uh, the other day this week. Um, and basically, there are two things. Um, once I graduated uh, from U of H, I became more involved in the queer and Asian LGBTQ community, which is something I you know, really didn't get into when I was in college. Um, I created or uh, co-founded Queer and Asian Houston, uh, which is now defunct. It has been for uh, many years. Um, and I went to a national conference where I saw my peers. Like, there are hundreds of us. And I was like, whoa, this is overwhelming, but, you know, it's, it's so nice to, I feel, I, I sense, I have a sense of belonging, I guess. Um, in addition to that, I used to write for Outsmart and um, I have the great, great opportunity um, to interview Arden Eversmeyer, who, as some of most, uh, you probably know, recently passed away. Um, and uh, I was able to, she invited me into her house. And I got to look at, um, the scrapbooks and transcripts from the Old Lesbian Oral History Project, uh, which, you know, she, uh, created and she's been working on with Margaret Purcell. They've written two books. Um, and so it was just the, the care. Right? She had so much care and she was building relationships with these women who weren't just from Houston, right? Like, I believe she had a national, international reach. And so, um, you know, it was just, it was interesting to see how, um, you know, the, the record of her engaging with these women and them building these relationships, them creating this like, community that goes beyond Houston, um, and, you know, they they had this, they realized at some point, right, that they're, these stories are not, cannot be found anywhere. So we're going to make it happen. So I recall walking away from her house and just, like, looking back and being like, I need to be more intention intentional about preserving history. Like, and then, you know, considering the communities that I belong in, you know, the greater LGBTQ community, yes, but also the Asian community, queer community. Um, And I was like, this is something that I want to do, but it's of interest, right? Not necessarily uh, I want to do it as a career at this point. So um, at some point, my partner and I in 2012 moved to Massachusetts um, because she wanted to pursue a graduate uh, degree in um, social work. And in Boston, there is... Um, a school called Simmons University and they have this uh, program this graduate program library information science Um, and one of their one of their tracks is archives management Um, and so what better place to pursue uh, a master's degree in archiving um, in Boston which is like this small city right but it's It's like a global hub, and it has hundreds of universities uh, which have archival repositories and so many historical societies, right? So um, that's how it started. And ever, you know, ever since the beginning of getting into this field, you know, starting with my graduate studies, um, I always stayed connected to, I want to somehow preserve the history of LGBTQ um, Asian American history. And, but how am I going to do that? Right now, I'm in Boston. I don't know where I'm going to be. I had no intention at the time to return to Texas ever. Um, and so, but I was like, I was always intent on still doing that work. So ever since then, which was, I got into my grad uh, program in 2014, um, that was part of it. So fast forward, um, I decided to pursue a PhD and I went to UCLA to work with a, specific archival study scholar, and um, so part of my doctoral studies, I got a grant, and I decided to use that money to study, um, to visit Texas archives, um, and also to talk, to um, have some conversations with LGBTQ um, Asian American community members. So in 2017, that's what I did, and one of the archives I um, researched at was the University of Houston Special Collections. and um, I also went to Texas A&M um, to look at their collection. So what's interesting about doing this research at Texas A&M, it got me to think, like, what does it require for me as someone who's brown and I look more masculine, you know, queer, non-binary, to travel alone? Um, you know, to I've done this before, right? My sister was an Aggie. Like, that was, you know, as a kid. But... Um, I just sort of paid attention to my environment, right? And this is important because as archivists, what environment are we creating for the people who visit our spaces? And so anyway, um, at the time, the collection at UVH wasn't as big as it is now. So, um, you know, this is just one of the ways I just stayed connected um, to Texas LGBT Asian American history is like through the work, uh, my graduate studies, and then my doctoral studies, um, but also, I'll be honest, I think that I, like, the places I've lived, I think I know more about, like, uh, the, you know, political, um, political um, activities in Texas than I ever did in Massachusetts, in California, like, I <laughs> feel like I, was just a visitor in these places but yet i didn't think i would ever move back to texas which is weird but this is my home and i am so very glad to be back we really wanted our um our our child as in to grow up we wanted him to know our parents and our long-term friends and that support system so this really is the best probably the best possible way for me to like return home in this particular position to like Be involved, directly involved in this and actually get paid for it. That's one of the things is that going into um, archives, I thought, well, I can still be part to do this work to preserve this particular history, but I know I'm going to have to do it on a volunteer basis, Um, especially, you know, if I'm not living in Texas. But miraculously, (laughs) this uh, public research university in Texas created this position. They saw value in it. It was important. You you we all know the rich, vibrant in history that is in Houston across the region. And so, you know, it and it's all about money, right? But they made it happen. And here I am, I'm not going anywhere. I'm never, never gonna leave this position. <laughs>
3: The LGBT History Research Collection includes personal papers, organizational records, publications, library collections that preserve and promote the collective understanding of Houston's and the region's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities and service organizations materials document the community's cultural social and political activism and the personal experiences of community members UH libraries is an active member of Houston Arch the Houston area rainbow Collective history organization and it seems like oh, I'd say over the last 15 years there has been a growth in an interest in preserving our history but the archives are not just a depository. So tell me how they are used as an active resource.
1: The archives, what we do is we partner with um, community members, individuals, as well as organizations, um, and to, to do exhibits. Um, every year, um, the, uh, Vince Lee, who is the archivist, my colleague who has, was curating Um, The collection before me, um, he has been engaging with um, Houston Arch and um, J.D. Doyle, uh, J.D. Doyle Doyle Archives, amazing, sweetest man. I'm so glad to be connected to him. Um, And Sarah Fernandez and Kirk Baxter with the Banner Project, right? Um, And like, you know, be engaged in these these community events. Um, And, um, you know, with... The um, there are also um, you know, not just it, it expands actually beyond the LGBT community as well. Um, I do have plans to um, you know, engage with other communities beyond LGBT, the LGBT community because um, folks you know, everywhere really need to know um, this history, it, it um, intersects um, you know. General U.S. history. So um, you know there are, um, in addition to um, you know the exhibits, um, there um, you know where we are present. There are also opportunities to loan out the um, the materials. You know it's still a little more difficult, but you know especially with like other repositories, um, you know not only within Texas but you know across the U.S. Um, we may loan um, stuff as they put things on, um, display. Um, and yeah, so, you know, there are, I'm looking at different ways that speci- especially, students, um, on campus and, um, high school students possibly, um, to use the materials, you know, for their creative projects. Um, and that could be, that, that could really be anything. So, yeah.
3: People can actually go to a physical space and see exhibits.
1: Yes. So uh, right now um, we have we don't have anything display in the library um, or um, anywhere else right now. But there are sort of like pop ups, right? Like the display um, things at events, and there is um, you know possibility. One of the things that is really important. Is that, you know, again, the, this collection is of the community, and so the community needs to have access to it, and that access needs to be as wide as possible. Right now, Special Collections is um, um, opens to uh, visitors by appointment from Monday through Friday. And so one of the things I want to do is like, how can we create a space within the community somewhere, to where that access is like more immediate? And it's outside of typical business hours. You don't have to pay for parking, you know. And how can that be that the direct, more direct connection, uh, physical connection, um, to the community that this that the collection um, represents? So that is, you know, that is definitely on the horizon.
3: <laughs> and the archives hold materials such as the Ray Hill papers, the Mantra Center records, that. Diana Foundation records. As you said, JD's both the Queer Music Heritage Archive and his collection of LGBTQ radio programs. So I guess Queer Voices is in there someplace. Then there's individuals that will give what they have accumulated over their lives. I wish I had been more conscious of collecting and saving. I wasn't able to keep everything that I've been involved in. So I have only a very small contribution. I gave a lot of my material to JD, but say there's someone and they say, oh, I have 12 boxes of stuff. When can I bring it over? What happens and what should people be doing if they want to donate their collections to the archive?
1: if someone called up and said, Hey, I have 12 boxes. I'd like to donate. Um, what would happen is, well, let's definitely have a conversation. Um, you know, what kind of materials are they? Um, you know, are there any preservation issues? Like basically um, how have the materials been stored? Um, are there, is there mold? Uh, Are there tears? Are there stains? You know, we want to, to know, you know, what actually can we bring in? Um, you know the size of the collection. Um, also, you know the um, donors. Um, you know the uh, the potential donors' uh, connection, right, to the LGBT history. But also, um, what are the what kind of materials and what are they documenting? So you want to know, um, you know, what they'd like to donate. Um, and one of the things that, uh, we do is that basically if they wanted, if the potential donor wanted, um, we could come to their residence or wherever the collection is, um, to look at the materials, to see exactly what we are, um, able to, to bring in and to accept. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty much it. And then we would arrange, um, you know, to, uh, transfer the box, the boxes, uh, to UH Special. Special Collections, um, uh, donors would then uh, fill out an accession form, which is basically, you know, the, these are the materials that um, I own. I don't necessarily have copyright to them, or I do, um, and I am transferring, you know, ownership to UVH Special Collections. So, you know, and it's a very uh, brief form. So that's pretty, pretty much it. And, um, you know, there's definitely more to it. Uh, I really like to, it's not, it's not meant to be a transaction. These materials are, represent people's lives over time, right? So, um, there's such meaning to it, and not just to them, I'm pretty, you know, pretty sure, of uh, folks right now and future generations. So, it's, I don't want, um, you know, that interaction, again, to be a transaction, and it shouldn't be. So, at that time, if I don't already know this potential donor, we're gonna start building a relationship, if it's something that they want, you know, um, because I wanna make sure that they know, that you know we are you know these aren't just things um, and that this is the plan for preservation and this is you know also if they want to know who i am and how i approach archives um so that's a little bit a bit about what would happen um if someone wanted to donate their material
3: what is the best way for them to organize the material
1: a lot of times right when People want to donate their materials if they're not organized, right? So on one hand, I would say, um, you know, it's okay if you don't organize, you know, and if you do at some point think, you know what, one day I do want to donate materials to an archive, you know, doesn't have to be at U of H, but it'd be great if it is. Um, and I want them to, um, you know, I want to organize it for them. Well, it, can, it could be in, in different ways. If you have papers, definitely grab some, um, you know, uh, folders um, and so that, you know, the papers don't bend or they don't crease, um, you know, just, and I'm very much about, you don't need to use archival grade, um, uh, you know, boxes right now. Um, just whatever you, whatever you have, you know, you don't need to like go out and, Spend money on on containers, just something that is you know strong enough to hold whatever materials um, you have. Um, So you know with you know I would say you don't need to also there aren't there isn't there's certainly like uh, again archival grade like uh, tissue paper and all that stuff. It's not something that average folks have at their home. So really, just if anything, definitely keep boxes, uh, bins in um, areas in your home um, that sort of have this, like, average temperature. That's one thing, definitely. Um, You know, especially with any materials that have, like, adhesive attached to it. You know, if that's something that people are able to do. Like, in Texas, you probably don't want to leave things in your garage. I mean, you can do it if that's the place where you have, um, that's the only place you have space. Um, but you know, if you can keep it in your house you know, that's the best way to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just different kinds of, it doesn't have to be, if you only have plastic bags, do that. The important thing is, is like, and the, that's just such a great thing. If people are thinking about preserving for the future, just use whatever you have, but just, you know, be careful with them, you know, just set it off to the side. Um, you know, don't have any kind of, um heavy uh, objects on top of things that could break, you know, just, let's just be mindful, you know, of these materials so that they do, um, um, so that they're preserved for, uh, for the future.
3: And you probably need some protection in Houston from flooding.
1: Yes, that is correct. Um, and the good thing is special collections is located on the second floor of MD Anderson Library. Um, that's not to say that um, water hasn't gotten into, seeped into the windows during Harvey, but um, you know, for the most part, the the collection um, uh, survived, and uh, there wasn't much damage. It, was, it really came through like the, the offices of uh, special collections, but not um, the stacks where the collections are held.
3: Is it useful for people to? Index or catalog, or somehow notate exactly what it is. Oh my gosh,
1: that is ah, uh, that is a a major um, you know action to do. Like to help the archivists. That would be great if folks you know, along with setting aside materials that they'd like to donate, you know, keeping track of that inventory. It doesn't have to be on a fancy spreadsheet. You can you know. Um, right? Legibly. um, But that would be amazing if with your your donation of materials comes a complete inventory. Now, um, you know, if it's going to deter anyone from, uh, you know, um, uh, organizing your materials, don't worry about it. That's part of what archivists do, right? We process and we document. So, but yes, The best, that would be so great if people kept inventories and the more information that you provide, um, you know, then that is, you know, that's better for, you know, of course the archivist, but also for the people who will access your collection. Um, But, you know, that's, that's the whole thing about archives. It's about research, right? Um, But yeah, if you want to help folks in the future, um, definitely provide as much information. Um, You don't have to go provide every single thing, but, you know, dates, are good. Right. Um, um, and one thing to consider too, is yes, you have photos of, you know, your friends, um, but you may not, you know, there might be, um, you know, you may want to consider would some people want to be named, right? Like, um, you can decide whether or not, uh, you know, you want to do that, but that's something, um, um to think about. Uh, But if you, you know, if you have photos of your friends and everyone's out and it's all good, you know, that's something you can probably add if you want. Um, Like, who am I, who are we looking at in in these photos? Um, And, of course, you don't have to do it at an item level, you know. Um, Just as archivists, we, most of the time, we don't process it at the item level. But, of course, you know, it's up to you if you want to be that detailed. But definitely, there were uh, an inventory with information would be so helpful because that would help the processing um, uh, stage, which, um, you know, does, can take a long time. But, yes, that would be great.
3: Once it's there, how is it utilized? Once we bring in collections,
1: um, you know, they are, you know they weren't going. They wouldn't be immediately processed, um, right? Because there is, you know, there's definitely a lot to process right now, um, and you know. But once it is processed, then we create finding aids, and they're, finding aids are kind of like library catalogs. You go in and you try to see basically what is in these uh, in this collection. Is it something that I do want to actually uh, look through? So in a finding aid, you have you know the name of the donor perhaps the name of the creator. The donor and the creator aren't necessarily the same person or the same organization. Um, Title of the collection, the uh, scope and contents of the collection, you know, what kind of materials are in here, what um, do they document, what subjects are they, and, you know, how big is the collection, and what are some of the subject matters, um, and also the dates. You know, what is these, this collection spans 1960 to, you know, 2000. Um, so it's basically just this document um, that gives um, visitors, researchers, an idea of, is this something that I want to request to look at closer? Um so we create funding aids for collections um, to prepare that to help folks um, who come in, and um, you know, with the with the collection, you know, all collections, that special collections, um, it's intended to support you know education, research, and teaching, learning, um, and community um, community um, initiatives and projects, right? And that's very, very important. This uh, in Particularly, this collection is so community-centered. It's meant to be of the community, so it's not just only for um, you know engagement on the campus, but you know very much so with um, beyond uh, beyond the campus. So that is where, um, and you know, the vision actually that I w- was told um, when I interviewed for the job that you know it would be good. Um, the vision to expand, not just nationally, but um, globally. And it does make sense. The, the What has happened, um, you know, across the hi- history in Houston um, has had an impact on, you know, the communities across the globe. And so, you know, that is the vision.
3: What's the most unusual item that you think has been donated? Uh,
1: the most unusual item... I should have that in my back pocket um, from now on. Um, well, it's certainly, certainly all interesting. Um, I think, you know, because, uh, you know, Arden passed away recently, I went back into um, the collection for LOAF, right, the Lesbians Over Age of 50 organization, um, because I wanted to uh, look into that early history. Um, and so, one of the things uh, that's in there is um that first scrapbook a first scrapbook um, you know from like 1987 perhaps um, I think and it, it's it was just it was just touching it was just you know she had this she wanted to not just save these photos but um, she reflected on on what she was doing and so it was just so powerful to see these words, it wasn't handwritten, but it was typed, but they came directly from her, right? So um, I would say that's the first thing that comes to mind. But, you know, and there are definitely, um, you know, scrapbooks from um, the crew of Olympus, which uh, we put on display from, for the LGBT history, uh, LGBT history month this past October. And the students who came into the library and, and um, came by, most of them like were so drawn to one of the scrapbooks of the crew and they just commented on how great it was so um, great and powerful to see, um, to be able to um, see these images. Um, But I would say, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that those two items would um, first come to mind, but um, I'm sure there are definitely more stuff. I would say, you know, there are first editions, right. Of, uh, full runs of, you know, the lesbian publication on our backs, you know, there's Sinister Wisdom, like, there are some interesting, there is a mass over, like, maybe 1,100 books from the Bob Carver Memorial Collection, um, you know, that I really want to dig into, um, but yeah, it's these uh, publications that, um, you know, the er- earlier days um, that that are there, and I'm you know, for me, I'm like just blown away by it.
3: Joyce, if people want to get in touch with you, how is the best way to do that? Or to find out more about the LGBT History Research Collection at the University of Houston?
1: You can um, you can just, you know, do the quick web search, the uuh Special Collections LGBT. You'll find our page.
3: We've been talking with Joyce Gabbiola, who is the LGBT History Research Collection Librarian of the LGBT History Research Collection at the University of Houston.
0: Coming up next on Queer Voices, Deborah has a conversation with Patricia Gray-Hall about her memoir of growing up lesbian in the 1960s and 70s this is glenn from queer voices you're listening to kpft that means you're already participating just by listening but how about doing more kpft is totally listener funded which means it's people like you who are making donations who support this community resource kpft has no corporate or government strings attached funding which means we're free to program responsibly but without outside influence Will you participate in KPFT financially? This station needs everyone who listens to chip in a few dollars to keep the station going because that's the way it works. Even if you're listening over the internet on another continent, you can still contribute. Please become an active member of the listener community by making a tax-deductible contribution. Please take a minute to visit kpft.org and click on the red Donate Now button. Thank you.
3: What was it like to survive an illegal abortion, come out as a lesbian, and train to become a doctor in the late 1960s and early 70s, before Roe v. Wade, before Title IX, and in a largely homophobic nation? Patricia Grayhall answers some of these questions in her memoir, Making the Rounds, Defying Norms in Love and Medicine. Patricia. This is a memoir, and you and I are about the same age. So when I read your book, it was a bit of a trip down memory lane, even though our stories took different paths to a large degree. And at one time, you thought you were the only lesbian in Arizona. And when you figured out that you were a lesbian, you did something that I found really fascinating. What did you do?
2: When I was 15, I overheard my mother talking about uh, explaining to my father what the word lesbian meant. And I thought, oh, maybe that's me. So I took the bus to the Phoenix Public Library and I looked up everything I could find about lesbians and homo- homosexuality. And what I found was that homosexuality was defined as a mental illness and that, um, homosexuals were described as being unable to hold down jobs or sustain relationships and were doomed to lead unhappy lives. So I thought, well, I'm not sure I want to be a lesbian. So I tried my best to be straight for a few years with nearly disastrous consequences.
3: But you did something rather interesting with a phone call. Can you share that?
2: When I was reading these books, I I saw that there was an organization called Daughters of Belitis, I think it's pronounced, and they were located in San Francisco. So I called directory assistants and I got their number, and then I waited until my mom was away from the house, and I called them collect so my mom wouldn't see, you know, the call on her phone bill. And and this woman answered the phone with a rather low, gruff voice, and it might have been... uh, um, Dale Martin. Dale Martin. Yeah, right, exactly. So uh, I asked her if there's any way that I could meet other girls like me who like girls. And she said, no, probably not, because I told her I was 15. <laughs> she said, you're underage, and there really aren't any places for you to go to meet other underage women. A lot of women congregate in bars, and I didn't look. Um, you know, I I pretty much dressed conventionally as a girl, even though I had tomboy tendencies. And, um, you know, I, I just didn't know how to recognize other girls like me. So I was really disappointed. But I resolved at that point that as soon as I could, I would go to San Francisco, which apparently was where all the lesbians were.
3: And your path towards not wanting to be a lesbian because it was just a fate worse than death at the time. <laughs> right. You embarked upon some relationships, including one that was quite inappropriate with an older man. I mean, I think that was the one thing in the whole book that shocked me the most. Then in another relationship, essentially to say you had sex one time with a man and you became pregnant. That led to you having to have an illegal abortion thankfully your mother was supportive but your description of what it was like going to Mexico and I think it was a, probably a better scenario than what a lot of women experienced but still it was pretty horrific can you say yeah. a little
2: bit about that first of all you know we all want to love and be loved to most of us do and have friendship and to belong and of course when you're told that who you love and who you are is wrong, you make every effort, well, often we make efforts to become what we're not, just to belong, which is what I did. And I did end up having a, uh, well, first I had a boyfriend, and um, as you know from the book, I found myself more attracted to his sister than to him, in the end. Um, But I, I kept trying to, see you know if i could be straight and hence the relationship with the older man um but the the abortion that you refer to after one episode of unprotected sex was nevertheless quite frightening going to uh Nogales, mexico being driven around through the streets not knowing where we were and ending up at a house in someone's bedroom possibly under unsterile conditions you know i did have i i didn't die (laughs) i didn't get a horrible infection but there was always that that risk with uh, an illegal abortion i and and i don't think many people today don't really know i mean young people have enjoyed reproductive freedom to greater or lesser extent for decades now and uh now with the overturning of roe v wade we in many ways are back where we were and uh It just shows how how fragile our gains can be as women and as as queer people, too, with the backlash against uh, gays happening in several parts of the country.
3: That was exactly why I wanted to ask you about that, because I think it's so important that people understand what it was like and what it could be again and whatever kind of resistance we can give to hopefully someday have it truly constitutionally protected. You had thought about becoming a zoologist, but someone influenced you towards studying medicine. You were a good student. You had good grades. You had gotten a scholarship to Arizona State University and eventually ended up going to all places, Salt Lake City, to study medicine. What was that environment like at that time?
2: Back to you know, deciding to become a doctor, there were there were two influences. One was, was my grandfather was a doctor in the first part of the 1900s in a small town in western Washington. And I heard stories about him riding horseback up the Wannucci to deliver a baby or take care of a fallen logger. He uh, estimated he delivered about 4,000 babies. And I thought how cool it would be, you know, to take care of people in times of crisis. But um, I didn't really decide to become a doctor until I met, and when I did go to San Francisco and I, to meet other lesbians in 1969, I met a woman who was a, both a lesbian and a doctor, and I, it inspired me. I thought, well, she can do it. Why, why, why don't I? So I went back, studied hard, and uh, as I was running out of money, because they um, discontinued the grant that I had, I applied to medical school early and with only two and a half years of college. And Salt Lake City, the medical school in Salt Lake City, was the only one that accepted me. I mean, it was a miracle I was accepted at all with two and a half years of college and being a woman before Title IX, which guaranteed equal access to education for women. So when I went there, I I was one of only five women in a class of 100, mostly Mormon men. And it was really lonely. <laughs> I I roomed with another woman who was um, a staunch Lutheran, very religious. When I came in, she I she had her God loves you needlepoint on the wall. And I promptly put up my poster of Angela Davis with her fist in the air. <laughs> and that kind of shows a little bit how, you know, we just had different experiences and backgrounds. And eventually I invited one of my fellow medical students, which are, you know, as I said, mostly all male, to move in with me because I thought he was gay. But he didn't think he was gay, but I was pretty sure he was. <laughs> he just didn't know it yet. So, you know, it took, it took from freshman year when we moved in together to senior year in medical school for him to finally come out with my help. Um, yeah. And that, anyway. made, that made the experience of being in Salt Lake City worthwhile, because we were close friends. We lived together. We did meals together. We studied together, hiked together. And uh, we had a little tribe of non-Mormons uh, that we used to uh, study with and and uh, have meals with occasionally. And, and it felt comfortable. I actually have to say I was happy there in Salt Lake City.
3: And your friendship with David... Continued through the years, he's still a friend today. And but you shared so much of your life with him not only as roommates, but eventually buying a house together, also working together. It probably to me, reading the book, it sounded like he was kind of your foundation in many ways.
2: Well, absolutely. Um, people who read my book, everybody loves David. He uh, he was my most stable relationship throughout my twenties, and um, I had a number of romantic liaisons with women. But um, in those days, it was it was the seventies. It was the sexual revolution. It was second wave feminism. Monogamy was considered passe. Uh, We celebrated desire, but not necessarily commitment. I didn't know any lesbian couples that had been together for more than a few years in a committed relationship. And as you know, in those days when we were closeted, often people would find their partner and then they'd drop out socially and you'd never see them again. I just didn't have any good role models. And I, you know, thrashed around in my 20s trying to figure out what I wanted in relationship. And you uh, probably noticed that um, I, I didn't always appear in the best light as I struggled through my youth. And um, conf- youthful confusion. But when you write a uh, memoir, um, you, uh, uh, well, I was tempted to comment on events in my youth from the perspective of the elder I've become and to expound on the importance of boundaries and trust in a loving relationship and the enduring power of friendship and with a warning not to undervalue or squander love. But when you do that in memoir, you jar the reader out of the fictive dream. And I had really had to learn to remain in the confusion of youth on the page to show the process of transition to greater maturity. So, writing my memoir from my youthful perspective allowed me to experience actually compassion rather than judgment for myself as I was then, a young woman struggling to fulfill needs and wants um, as best I could, employing the life skills I had at the time. So, it's my hope readers will learn from my mistakes and poor choices but Hopefully, also my resilience and strength.
3: Eventually, you moved to Boston, and it was the 70s, and it was the height of the women's movement. Real things were happening the Boston Women's Health Collective, our bodies, ourselves. And so you discovered feminism, while you embraced it, it also presented some challenges because, as you say, you could celebrate female eroticism, but beyond desire, sustaining a healthy relationship with a woman was the bigger challenge. And in your hindsight, like you say, and sometimes you don't come off in the best light, and many of your lovers pretty much told you or criticized the things that they found of concern did you take them to heart at the time or was it only in hindsight as you were writing them more that you said yeah I was kind of a you know (laughs) off the mark there
2: (laughs) well um both actually so when when you're living your life sometimes it feels like a series of random and chaotic events. And it was really only when I started writing, and initially I only wrote for myself, I didn't intend to publish a book. I almost threw away the journals uh, from those times because we were downsizing and we had a big bonfire going. And uh, I almost pitched them in the fire, you know, (laughs) Um, but I decided to read them. And the journals are mostly about my personal relationship struggles. Because, you know, after 36 hours at the hospital, the last thing I want to do is come home and write about my, you know, experiences at the hospital. So, um, yes, I think during the time, sometimes I did realize that I was off the mark in, um, and, you know, what what I was doing. Sometimes I was aware that I was hurting myself and others. and um, And other times I think I just, you know, it's, I'm in my twenties. I just don't know yet what uh, what I want in a relationship. And you see, throughout the book, there's an arc. You know, there's an arc of transition where eventually I do realize what I want, and um, you know, go forth with with you know my my <laughs> resolve to to create relationships with bound boundaries and trust, and and uh, not to squander love, basically.
3: What was the hardest part to write about?
2: Well, I think the hardest part to write about was the relationship with that older man, because um, putting that out there in the world, it was always associated with shame. And it, and I realized when I was writing it, it wasn't my shame to bear. You know, it was his shame.
3: Right. And,
2: um, and I early on, when I was writing mostly for myself, I showed that to a friend of mine here in, um, in Canada. and. She's been one of my main supports from the very beginning. And she told me about some experiences she had that she hadn't told anyone. And she was absolutely adamant that I keep that in. She said that there are so many women that can relate to that, uh queer or straight. Um and I actually found that to be true. Um maybe not, you know, the exact same circumstances of course, but the but the basic power dynamic. So Um, I think. So I decided to keep it in. And I do cringe a little bit about that.
3: I was fascinated to learn that you almost burned those journals. Thankfully, you didn't, because a lot of your story, you use vivid imagery, and you talk about things like how people were dressed, what you ate at a certain dinner. I can see where that is a useful tool to have. You've written four medical journals. You have had articles in Queer 40, the Gay and Lesbian Review, the Millions, Lesbian Game Changers, the Seattle Lesbian, and Seattle Magazine. What are your plans for future writing? Because I understand that you view writing as your second career.
2: I do. And um, but back to the, the memories in the journals. It was those journals that allowed me to, to put that much detail in some of those scenes, especially, for example, the scene with Jillian, um, one of the women that I was very much attracted to because I did actually record even <laughs> what she was wearing and how I was feeling and you know exactly what happened. So that was really quite helpful in retaining those memories. But you asked me what's for the future. My partner and I have written a novel together. It's a Romance uh, with older protagonists because when I uh, I often well I hadn't been reading lesbian romance but I started reading it when I thought I would write this novel and it seems like most of the protagonists are young, beautiful, athletic, thin, and you know <laughs> they all are at the height of their careers or or getting there, and they all have happy endings. Um, I realize a romance by definition has to. Uh, have a happy ending, but I wanted to write uh, one that featured some older protagonists who maybe have a few stretch marks and and perhaps you know high cholesterol and nevertheless you know have desires and have you know vibrant are capable of vibrant romance. So that's what we're do- we're doing. We we started it during the pandemic in November of 2020, and. My partner hadn't written anything before, and I hadn't ever written a novel. We did the Nanorama challenge, so it's sitting here. It requires some revision, but I've already done the cover, which I really like, and uh, and I think eventually we'll we'll probably self-publish it. Romance uh, novels are, you know, they tend to do well with self-publishing, and we have more control, so I think we'll do that.
3: Would there be any advice you would give to other aspiring writers?
2: I think the best advice I could give is just write, you know, write your, just write your story. I mean, that's what I did in the beginning. I didn't intend to publish and then you can learn the craft, which is really fun. You know, the craft of writing, um, characterization and sensory detail and the structure and arc of the story. Um, but, uh, The important thing is just to write in the beginning. And then the second thing is be careful who you show it to. Um, In the beginning, it's really important to just share it with people who who will be supportive because your feelings are tender in the beginning. (laughs) And, you know, after a while, when you start revising and getting better at your craft, you can join a critique group. And that's been very helpful for me, too, as I went along, is to have others provide constructive feedback.
3: And you um, also took a memoir writing class.
2: I did. I took a six-month memoir writing class with uh, Brooke Warner and Linda Joy. It was excellent. And uh, I think it was during that time that I pretty much uh, perfected my craft to the extent that I had, had at that point. And I would suggest doing that too. That was a very useful experience.
3: There's something you say in the very beginning. It may be in the prologue where you say, this is my story as I remember it, because we learn that sometimes the memories we have are not quite the same as what other people may have. I really like that because you can only tell your story as you remember it. Patricia Grayhall is a medical doctor and author of Making the Rounds, Defying Norms in Love and Medicine. How can people be in touch, find out more?
2: Go to my website at patriciagrayhall.com. And my book is available wherever books are sold. But on my website, I have another number of options like bookshop.org, which is independent bookshops, as well as Amazon. And I have an audiobook too, that's available on various sites. Um, including Spotify and a whole bunch of others. Um, And uh, that's probably the best thing to do is go to my website and choose from those options. Uh, Find out a lot more.
3: And to find out more about this new book that'll be coming out, you are also can be found on Facebook, Patricia Grayhall Author. This is Deborah Moncrief Bell.
0: Smart speakers sure are handy things. Suppose you're coming home from grocery shopping with your hands full. You can say, computer, open the door for me. I'm sorry,
4: Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
0: Oh, well, um, you can ask your smart speaker almost anything. Like, what's the time?
5: Sorry, I didn't understand the question I heard.
0: Okay, well, at least you can ask your smart speaker to play Queer Voices. Somehow, it knows where to find our podcast. And it will just play it for you. If you don't want to do that, you can check out our website, queervoices.org. There you can find links to our current and past podcasts and playlists of the music we present. That's queervoices.org.
4: Coffee Black.
5: Make it yourself.
4: I'm Wenzel Jones. And
5: I'm Tanya Kane-Perry.
4: With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news inter-affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending February 25, 2023. Kenya's government must recognize the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission's right to exist by order of the Supreme Court. The group called the February 24th ruling on its application to become a non-governmental organization a triumph for justice and human rights. The nation's NGO Coordination Board first rejected their application in 2013 because their name had gay and lesbian in it. Private consensual adult same-gender sex remains a crime in Kenya. However, the High Court decided in 2015 that rejecting the group's application violated the East African nation's constitution. The Court of Appeal concurred in 2019. This week's Supreme Court reaffirmation declares that it would be unconstitutional to limit the right to associate through denial of registration of an association purely on the basis of the sexual orientation of the applicants. The National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission says the ruling emboldens our resolve as a community to agitate for a better Kenya for all of us. It will need plenty of resolve to combat the British colonial-era laws that remain in effect. Offenders convicted of Carnal knowledge against the order of nature or gross indecency face up to 14 years in prison.
5: A South Korean gay male couple is entitled to the same national health insurance spousal coverage as heterosexual couples. The Seoul High Court's February 21st ruling did not specify why it overturned the January decision of a lower court. That court had found that since marriage laws apply only to the union of one man and one woman, there were therefore no grounds to include same-gender couples in the coverage. So Song Uk told the Korean Herald, "I am delighted because I felt like the judges told us through a court decision that the feelings of love I have for my husband should not be the target of ignorance or insults." Kim Young Min added. It took us such a long time to have our marriage status recognized within the legal framework. The couple held a wedding ceremony in 2019, but they could not legally register their union. South Korean health insurance laws grant spousal coverage to common-law heterosexual partners. With this ruling, same-gender partners can no longer be denied. Amnesty International's East Asia researcher Boram Hyung believes the ruling offers hope that prejudice can be overcome, and it moves South Korea closer to achieving marriage equality. The government can appeal the ruling in the nation's Supreme Court.
4: Bulgaria's Supreme Court has banned trans people from legally changing the gender marker on their government documents. A few liberal Bulgarian judges have interpreted the nation's law on identity documents to allow for the possibility of gender reassignment. Although the law says that, in case of gender change, trans people must apply for new documents within 30 days, the lower courts no longer have that option. The high court specifically decided on February 20th that gender reassignment should become the subject of detailed legal regulation. The justices wrote, The Constitution and Bulgarian legislation are built on the understanding of the binary existence of the human species. Adla Kachanova is the Legal Defense Program Director at the Bulgarian Helsinki Committee. She noted that it would not be the first time that the southeastern European nation could come under EU scrutiny. She told Balkan Insight, this will trigger a wave of new cases against the country at the European Court of Human Rights, and possibly also in the European Court of Justice. The Bulgarian Socialist Party government cited the nation's so-called Christian values and congratulated the Supreme Court for ruling against trans rights. Its pro-Russian leaders proclaimed, For us Bulgarians, the children and the family are of great value, and the Constitution and the rule of law stand above everything.
5: Tennessee is on the verge of becoming the latest U.S. state to ban gender-affirming care for transgender young people. The Republican-dominated legislature has also made it the first state in the country to go after the right wing's second favorite punching bag by banning family-friendly drag shows. Both bills are headed to Republican Governor Bill Lee for his expected signatures. Unless he vetoes them, the bills will become law within 10 days whether or not Lee signs them. The bill on gender-affirming care bans puberty blockers and hormone treatment for the purpose of gender transition for young people under the age of 18. It also bans rare reassignment surgery for minors. Minors currently undergoing treatment would be cut off by March of next year. The anti-drag show bill classifies male and female impersonators as adult cabaret performers and bans adult-oriented performances that are deemed harmful to minors, according to The Tennessean. Bans on drag queen shows come in response to the growing popularity of drag queen story hours, those fun-filled readings of queer-affirming children's books by bedazzled performers enjoyed by young kids and their parents, horrifying legislatures in more than two dozen other Republican-controlled states. Some of them have already outlawed gender-affirming care for minors.
4: Drag Queen's story hours have become a prime target of the Proud Boys, a far-right U.S. militia group that falsely links drag shows to pedophilia. This week, they turned violent in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Silver Springs, Maryland. A contingent of Proud Boys tried to stop Charlemagne Chateau from hosting a Drag queen story hour at the Loyalty Bookstore. However, a drag-supportive group called the Parasol Patrol tried to prevent the children and their family members attending the show from seeing and hearing the hate-spewing protesters outside. According to on-scene reports by the local NBC-TV affiliate, one member of the Parasol Patrol was punched in the face by a Proud Boys member, and others were assaulted before the police finally moved in to restore order. There were no arrests. Drag performer Chateau thanked the Parasol Patrol for keeping me and the families who are at the event safe in a brief Facebook message. Another drag queen story hour was stopped at the queer-owned Brick Road Coffee Shop in Tempe, Arizona this week after the venue received a bomb threat. A small group of Proud Boys was protesting nearby, but police found no explosives at the venue, according to the advocate. Several Proud Boys have been convicted of sedition for their participation in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol.
5: Finally, Minor league professional baseball player Anderson Gomas came out as a proud gay man on Instagram this week. The Dominican immigrant has competed in the Chicago White Sox system for a few years, first as an outfielder, but most recently as a pitcher. Team management expressed support for Comas after he came out to them last year. White Sox assistant general manager Chris Getz told Outsports, I was very pleased that he was comfortable sharing with us in player development and was also happy at the reaction across the organization, which, as you would expect, was to support, help, and congratulate a teammate. Comas explained, I'm doing this because I want to be an inspiration for those like me out there fighting for their dreams. Please don't listen to those stupid things that people say about us. Fight for your dreams. Believe in yourself and
4: go for it. That's NewsRap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending February 25th, 2023. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community.
5: NewsRap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you
4: by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. For This Way Out, I'm Wenzel Jones. Stay healthy.
5: And I'm Tanya Kane-Perry. Stay safe.
0: This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage, queervoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Levinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.